0: My name is Jack Clabby. I'm an attorney at the law firm of Carlton Fields, PA. I'm recording this podcast for the ABA section of litigation in the Sound Advice podcast program. I'm active with the ABA, and I'm a co-chair of the Class Actions Subcommittee of the Securities Litigation Committee. Today, I'm going to give you five tips for a successful local counsel engagement. This is an appropriate podcast for attorneys who are hiring local counsel, as well as for attorneys who are serving as local counsel. So I work out of the Tampa, Florida office, uh, but I began my career in, in Washington, D.C. with a stop in New Jersey. So I've had the opportunity to appear in the last eight years that I've been at Carleton Fields as local counsel uh, in federal and state court uh, here in uh, largely in the Middle District of Florida. In the course of my career, I've also had the chance to work with local counsel around the country, with particular experience in Delaware, given my practice in securities and corporate governance litigation. So from those experience, both serving as local counsel and working with local counsel, here are five top tips of what I've learned. First, it's important at the outset to determine what sort of local counsel engagement you and the client want. All right, there's really three options. The first is what I'll call true local counsel. There's a primary counsel who's working directly with the client, and then there's a local counsel uh, on that matter who's not necessarily participating full bore on the substantive aspects of the case, but is being used for the local rules, their understanding of how the judge operates their docket and their calendar, and any um, potential pitfalls under a local, um, uh, the law that's applying to the case. The, the second of the three types of local counsel engagement is where there's a national coordinating council, and there might be several matters across the country, and there's individual matter counsel in that specific venue. For example, let's say you have a, a client facing a dozen lawsuits uh, for products liability, across the country in, five, in 12 different states. Uh, in that, it makes sense sometimes for the company to hire one counsel to oversee that whole docket, but the individual cases might be run on a day-to-day basis by that individual state counsel, but running the pleadings or accessing a pleadings bank um, that's specific to the national counsel's um, coordination role. And then finally, you know, there are co-counsel arrangements where you essentially create a virtual law firm from both out-of-state counsel and in-state counsel, and you're operating sort of as one team with co-equal responsibilities. It's really important to define at the outset of the engagement, even before a national counsel or client goes to look for local counsel, it impacts everything. Um, The hiring decision in particular, you might hire someone differently if you're looking for substantive expertise in an area of the law, versus if you wanna know somebody simply who does a lot of cases in that particular court or before that particular judge. It also impacts how the potential local counsel will staff the action. It also impacts the budget, right? If it's a co-counsel relationship, the the in-state counsel's budget will be higher because they're doing more on the case. And yes, you do need to do a local counsel budget. And you really can't do that budget if you're a local counsel if you don't know the answer to what kind of role you're going to play or if it's left undefined. All right, the second of the five tips is pay attention, if you are a local counsel, to how you're gonna staff the matter, right? So if you are having a role in the substantive analysis, then you need to have folks with substantive expertise on the team that's staffing it versus simply having somebody who might have done uh, that engagement. So for example, um, if it's a pure local counsel engagement and you're thinking about folks at the law firm who could help, it might be, and let's say it's a securities fraud uh, lawsuit, it may be better to have a construction litigator who appears in front of that judge you know, dozens of times and knows their procedures really well versus having a, an expert securities litigator um, who's only appeared in front of that judge once or twice. But if you're doing it where it's more of a co-counsel arrangement, you probably want the latter. So I think that's really important to think about staffing for the local counsel. It's not just someone who's in the district It's got to be someone who's in the district and is going to be the right fit for what the client is trying to accomplish with that local council engagement. Importantly, when you're thinking about staffing, uh, think also about paralegals and legal assistants, because sometimes they're the ones who know the filing rules, um, the specific um, procedures for the presentation of evidence, uh, and I think that's often overlooked at the outset. So if, if the first tip is, Determine what sort of local council engagement is going to be. The second is think about staffing, then reflecting that. Uh, The third tip is to be a successful local council. The bedrock of it is know your local rules and know the judicial preferences. I mean, that's really where the value of a local council in a pure local council engagement can be important. When we work with local council in Delaware, you know, even if it's set up as a pure local counsel engagement, they're going to be, um, they just know that so well because of this, the peculiarities of that court. You almost need it. We've also hired uh, from time to time what we'll call hyper-local counsel. If I'm in Florida in a jurisdiction I've never been in before, even though my firm is, you know, has hundreds of lawyers in Florida all over the state, I might associate with a more local practitioner if there can be real insight uh, gained into a particular court that I haven't been in front of. And so that's really that third concept, is the knowledge of the local rules and the judicial preference is important. How is that reflected some ways? Well, it can be reflected in having tried and true forms for common pleadings, uh, tried and true forms for common court filings, like the pro-hack admissions, and bullet-pointed lists for exactly what national counsel has to do to get admitted into the court. Um, I think there's been a lot of emphasis in hiring local counsel on knowing the specific judge, but I think that's less important with knowing the preferences and knowing the local rules. Um, you, know, you know, we don't sell and, and no one really should sell based on ethical precepts, any sort of connections. I think that's a pretty odious thing. So if you're a national counsel and you're looking for local counsel and local counsel is selling connections, I think that's something certainly to step back from. Instead, keep it tactical, right? How many cases have you had in front of this judge in the last few years? Can you tell me a little bit about what this judge's preferences are? How does she run her docket? Um, tell me a little bit about what my initial pleading needs to look like and what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen. All right, the, the fourth tip is what I will call the sort of key ethical trap. Um, and this is when you uh, are serving as local counsel, um, what are some of the things that can sort of get you in trouble? Now, if you're local counsel, and this is the court that you're in a lot, I think you've got to be very careful, one, for your reputation, and two, that you're not, awry, you're not walking awry of any particular standards. Um, rule 11 of the federal rules um, and the rules of professional conduct in almost all jurisdictions, uh, they put on local law firms or any law firm who serves as local counsel a continuing responsibility to conduct what's called a reasonable inquiry. Uh, that reasonable inquiry is to ensure that the litigation and any filing isn't frivolous or that it's not unreasonable and that the pleadings are well grounded in the facts and the law. Um, you can always, of course, make a good faith argument for the extension of the modification or a reversal of law, but you've got to make sure that, that what you're filing both meets the can I come back to this court after I file a test and two uh, am, I, am I not violating ethical precepts test. Um, one of the things we do then as a result of this in our engagement letters is we include language that says we reserve the right to undertake our own um, investigations or activities if we need to do so to comply with either the rules of court or the rules of ethics. The real solution to this in practice, in addition to protecting yourself in your engagement letter, um, is to make sure that you're getting the briefs uh, as local counsel that you need to be filing in sufficient time and with sufficient detail and time to ask questions so that if you're gonna sign off on it, you can really put your name on it. It's that expectation of how much time you'll get, particularly for complex cases, that can take a local council representation and sort of turn it upside down and and put the local council at risk. If you're national council at the same time, you know, be respectful of those obligations of ethics on the local council and give them enough time with the briefing um, for them to review it to make sure that, that they're comfortable with it. All right, and so the fifth and the last one is Use the engagement letter, um, no matter which side of the retention that you're on, to lay out the expectations. The clients in particular like to see this because they sort of want to know, okay, how is this going to work? Um, you know, a couple things that I do is I add the ethics warning, that I spoke about in the in the fourth tip, to the engagement letter. Um, this used to be a prohibition against serving as mail drop counsel, but now it's a little more sophisticated though, where we talk about Rule 11. And we talk about um, making sure that we get all filings in sufficient time. It's also important in the engagement letter to sort out billing. That can sometimes be um, something that you don't want to be sort of building the airplane while you're on the runway. Is the local council going to be sending bills directly to the client? Or is the local council sending bills to national council, who's then going to review it and then send it on to the client for payment? Um, Or will it be some some other setup? Is there electronic billing? You don't want to be a month into working on the case, and you find out there's a set of preferences that the client has that you've never seen, and you are already made an appearance. And so nailing down the billing can really help, and the engagement letter is a place to do that. Other things that are really important at the outset of an engagement are who's going to be responsible for the litigation hold if you're a defendant in particular. Um, If you're local counsel, is that your responsibility under the local rules? Um, or the local practices, or is National Council going to handle that with your advice? Additionally, uh, a modern engagement letter often has ancillary services as a part of it. Things like maybe fees for hosting um, e-discovery, non-lawyer professional fees involved in the collection of documents. Who's going to be responsible for document collection, local or National Council? Who's going to be responsible for e-discovery hosting and fees that are associated with that? So you can use the engagement letter... Um, at least to have an occasion for a discussion uh, with national council and local council about those responsibilities. Um, another one is who's going to be responsible for costs, things like court reporters, uh, court reporters both at depositions and hearings, filing fees if you're on the plaintiff side, um, or if you need to um, interplead folks, um, expert fees and expert management. These are all things that uh, are real dollars and cents for clients. Dollars and cents for local council and national council, and the engagement letter is a good place to do it. Additionally, who's signing for the client? Is the national council going to sign on behalf of the client, and are they going to have the authority to do that, or is um, or is the client representative herself going to be signing it? And if so, what's the national council's sort of responsibilities and roles there? Um, so those are those are a couple of ideas I think um, in the engagement letter that can they can probably save you a lot of headaches down the road. So just to review, here are the here are the five. Tips, first, at the outset, even before you begin the search for outside counsel, determine what sort of local counsel engagement you want it to be. True local counsel, um, is it gonna be a national coordinating council, or is it gonna be um, a true co-counsel relationship between the the two law firms? The second tip, pay attention to staffing at the outset. You know, is local counsel gonna be an artist helping to paint the painting or is their role simply gonna be making the frame that goes around the painting of a brief that's written by um, national counsel with very little input from local counsel. Uh, the third tip is know your local rules and your judicial preferences and sort of use that um, rather than any intimations on connections as one of the determinants for who uh, to hire as local counsel. Fourth, the main ethics issue here can really be avoided if the national council gives the draft work product to the local council with enough time that local council can do a reasonable investigation before they sign off on it. Fifth, really use the engagement letter, no matter what side of this you're on, client, national council, or local council. Use the engagement letter to iron out how things are going to run. In the long term, it will save everyone money and time, and it will make things smoother. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, My name is Jack Clabby from the law firm of Carlton Fields, PA, uh, based in Tampa, Florida. And this has been a sound advice recording for the ABA's section of litigation. Thank you. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields.